0: Gustav Gressel is a senior policy fellow with the wider European program at the European Council on Foreign Relations, Berlin office. His topics of focus include Russia, Eastern Europe and defense policy, uh, armed conflict, missile defense and proliferation. Before joining ECFR, Gressel worked as a desk officer for international security policy and strategy in the Bureau for Security Policy of the Austrian Ministry of Defense and a research fellow of the Commissioner for Strategic Studies with the Austrian MOD. He was also a research fellow with the International Institute for Liberal Policies in Vienna. And before his academic career, he served five years in the Austrian Armed Forces. Gustav will be familiar. Uh, to many of you because he has appeared in media such as New York Times, Guardian, Foreign Policy, Kiev Post, Moscow Times, Telegraph, Economist, Newsweek, Deutsche Welle, and many more. Welcome to Silicon Please like and subscribe to hear more of the fantastic speakers we offer. And of course, if you want to consider supporting the channel, become a patron or buy me a coffee. Gustav, I've been looking forward to this for some time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for hosting me. And this is this is going to be fascinating because we, we've heard from a lot of uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, generals. I won't, I won't sort of uh, call them armchair generals because they are extremely knowledgeable, uh, passionate, uh, and, and, and it's an extraordinary privilege to have them on the site. But now we have, I think, a, a fantastic European perspective on some of those same questions. Um, what has been your impression over this last two years? Were you personally from your area of expertise, expecting the full-scale war, the full-scale aggression, uh, and following that, has the, frankly, calamitous performance of the Russian army surprised you in any way?
1: Um, yeah, so unfortunately, I have been expecting uh, the full-scale war. Um, I put that into writing uh point at a time in ECFR that you should be that basically the big aim of of the Russian army is to uh, reconquer the post-Soviet space uh, and deter NATO from interfering in that tussle. So exactly what basically unfolded after February 24th. Um, uh, Saying that, I have been surprised by the bad performance of the Russian armed forces. Um, I thought they would do much better. I thought uh, they uh would uh, i mean i I never believed it like this forty eight hours bullshit um I knew ukrainians I knew ukrainians would give a hard fight as as hard as they could um but uh, a lot of things if they were executed better uh from the Russian side uh could have made huge predicaments for the Ukrainian armed forces at the time so that the fact that the Battle of Kiev was won that easily before reaching Kiev as such, uh, is something that is a testimony to Russian incompetence. Um, uh, I thought they would actually make slower progress in the south out of Crimea, because that stretch is very narrow and actually better to defend, but there's something bad seems to have happened on the Ukrainian side. Misallocation of forces was one mistake, but um, I guess there was some sort of beyond Kherson, some further betray or... Defection or whatever, whatever something, some something bad happened there. Um, still, that the south was vulnerable was was a given, and that um, that basically, if a multi-pronged attack happens from the north and the south and the east, that uh, Ukraine will be in a very difficult time to react to all of them, and will have to prioritize certain areas, and they prioritize Kiev for pretty obvious reasons, and that of course meant that the south was gone um yeah uh i have to say i mean what what was shocking on on the russian side of course a lot of explanations fell into fell into place we knew that putin was listening only to very few people on ukraine and those had to had to um sort of conform with his political views on the country um that um that this would boil down into so much mismanagement yeah i could have foreseen if yeah putin is a micromanager um but it's still surprising that it did um uh, on the other hand a lot of things i mean on the russian side they actually knew the vulnerabilities this the whole new look reform was was attempted to address exactly those vulnerabilities that came to light uh with the full-scale invasion they were known um uh, they actually knew what should have been done about them. Uh Makarov uh wrote extensively about that and, and had a lot of symposias and workshops on that and and tried to address them. Um of course <laughs> sort of that went off rail, and after 2014, the Russian armed forces became a much more intransparent shop. Um and and it seems they they, they sort of Putin wanted to have Soviet nostalgia and he became Soviet he, he, he got Soviet nostalgia. Uh, but with Soviet nostalgia, you didn't win Wars. Um, yeah, so a lot of the reforms they they try to implement have actually been very effectively undone after they have been halfway executed. Um, yeah, but but that's that's where we are. Still, the war is not won and the war is not over. Um, uh, there is now a battle of attrition and a battle for material superiority, which uh, Putin also calculates he 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 will win. Uh, and whether the West is willing, <clears throat> I mean, it's able to support Ukraine, but whether they're willing enough, that remains to be seen. And that's a really good point. I mean, Ben Hodges makes the point that war
0: is a struggle between will and logistics. Um, but there is also an element of chance, uh, serendipity and, the, and of course, mistakes by one side um, can give significant advantages to the other. Um, in that respect, the Russian strategy to attack on so many fronts simultaneously with, we now know, relatively poor logistics is... If they had been a little smarter, let's say, and concentrated on, uh, let's say, the southern region via Kherson and then via Odessa and tried to get to Moldova without going through the north. um, Do you think that that could have led to a very different and far more tragic for
1: Ukraine outcome? Uh, It would. Uh, However, they thought, of course, that uh, they would have much more political support, which wasn't. Uh, hence of course, Kiev makes uh, makes sense from a political point of view because you decapitate Ukraine, um, and you you by decapitating it, uh, expect the the rest of the armed forces to try to make the west uh, way to somewhere in the very west, and by that you basically conquer, uh, and destroy the country. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, now. I mean, on the initial plan, yes, the, they were too much thinned out. Uh, lo- sort of logistics were uh, precarious, especially in the north, because of the way down to Belarus is very bad on infrastructure, uh, because of the Pripyat swamps, uh, Chernobyl accidents, and you know, a, a lot of the roads that went through hadn't been maintained for forty years, and that makes bad roads. Um, uh, also, their forces were under strength um, and, and all that accumulated to too many directions. Um, still, for example, just if, I mean, they had not the capability to take Kiev, but if you advance on Kiev, you force Ukraine to move troops to that direction because it's the capital and you have to defend it. Um, if they had not been so lazy in the air war um, and pulled through their attacks on Ukrainian air defense, not just sort of saying, Oh, mission accomplished after three days, we 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 do do something else, but kind of follow up, follow up, follow up, follow up. Um, they would not have allowed the Ukrainian Air Force to come back. Um, and if they would have prevented that, they could have made use of kind of putting pressure, military pressure on Kiev and conquering it because forces were too slim for that to enter a four million inhabitant city, but but to come close and to force Ukraine to move troops into that direction and then attack them from the air. Um, and by that, basically, sort of inducing constant movement on the Ukrainian side that exposes them to superiority, uh, that that would have been very convenient. Uh, And for that, the forces were just enough, and it would have created a lot of predicaments over this huge country if you can't properly move a lot of mechanized forces. Uh, What happened is they were lazy. Ukrainian air defense was basically up within one week. um, They shot down a hell of Russian aircraft. uh, And after that, they could move forces as they wanted to. And that, of course, allowed them to reallocate artillery, to reallocate mechanized forces. There were quite intensive tank battles. Um, we perceive the tank as something dead and antiquated now, but at the beginning of the war, there were actually brutal tank battles, especially in the east of Kyiv. Um, and yeah, well, well, the tanks got there from the east, um, uh, from the Donbass and, and also part from training grounds in the west and southwest, uh, and they could go there unmolested and then enter the battlefield and beat the Russians who were overextended by the time. So, Yeah. <laughs> It could have gone the other way, even with that forced disposition.
0: And even the Battle of Hostomel, you know, it's not just down to Russian mistakes. It's down to extraordinary Ukrainian uh, sort of bravery and perseverance, taking extreme losses as well. And I, I would guess a lot of it, there's always going to be an element of chance, certainly at those early stages of of, of the conflict. Um and it's interesting talking to, to to people who are involved in in that struggle of Hostomel
1: how on a knife edge it must have seemed at yeah. uh, 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 so many points, and that was even a very reckless plan because uh, if you look into Soviet maneuver doctrine, our uh, helicopter borne assaults should never be carried out beyond fifty kilometers from your forward uh, mechanized forces because otherwise because these airborne forces are thin logistics. Uh, and are vulnerable to armored counterattacks, And if you can't relieve them within 72 hours, um, uh, they are very likely to be lost. That's why Soviet doctrine restricted the the depth of of such mechanized assaults. Uh, They carried out this assault over like 150, 160 kilometers. Uh, So far beyond what kind of Soviet doctrine would have allowed you to do. and then immediately, um, sort of uh, resting on on aerial reinforcements by by transport planes, which is even e- even more risky because they can are much more vulnerable to air defense than than helicopters. Um, so so it was a brazen plan. It was really really something where everything had to work, and you had basically zero tolerance to failure or error of judgment. Um, and it. Almost worked, so that gives you uh, an idea and how much on the knife edge this was. And hadn't there been enough volunteers who basically on the fly organized themselves to to at least molest the Russian troops, uh, things ha- could have could have gone much worse for for Ukraine. And that's extraordinary hubris.
0: I mean, anybody who is aware of, or just even normal processes, let alone things that are happening in Russia. Um, you know, I work with developers all the time. And if I get a quote, or if I get, um, you know, an estimation, time estimation for a piece of work, or the amount of resources, yeah. I'll typically, you know, double it, treble it, whatever, yes. because I know the, the optimism that is built yes. in. And where you have a sycophantic vertical system, like Russia's, where, you're in deep trouble if you pass bad news up that vertical chain to your commanders. It would be strategically prudent, would it not, to build in quite a lot of headroom for mistakes, risks, equipment failure, logistics failure, and so on. Uh,
1: yes, and the, 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 after Georgia, actually the Russian armed forces were very well aware that that things never go to plan. Um, in, in Georgia, they had the problem that an enormously long chain of command. For their kind of centralized way of steering operations. Uh, and I came to the conclusion that that was a mistake. You need to give local commanders more leeway in making decisions on their own, and you have to be a more flexible organizations that can deal with friction. And that's why when I was still in the Ministry of Defense, we had constant requests from the Russian side to visit our um, uh, higher officers' education courses, uh, our mountain warfare courses, our um, and especially uh, Makarov was was interested in our uh, non commissioned officers training. He 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 visited uh, N so the the academy for. For NCOs, several times they indeed studied that. Uh, later, when I talked to German and, and Swiss colleagues, it was um uh, kind of they, they, they went to the Bundeswehr first, where they usually got a no. Uh, what they didn't get there, they went to, to us in Vienna, and what they didn't, didn't get from us, they uh, went to Bern and asked the Swiss for that. Uh, but of course, it's from their point of view, um, this kind of interest in um. <laughs> Uh, and I think here uh, they had much more interest in the in a German way of leadership than the Anglo-Saxon one because they knew that from the Second World War. Uh, they are a continental army; they have a continental land-centric military culture. Uh, so for them, this kind of Guderian, Manstein stuff—that's uh, kind of their idea. So okay, we have to we have to get there. Um, there were reasons why the Red Army in the Second World War was more doctrinal and and material heavy uh, than uh, than the Wehrmacht at the time. Um, but they perfectly understood that they are not the Red Army anymore. And uh, they have a different society. They have a different demographic structure. They have a different force structure. Uh, and they have different military aims. The military aims was to have a quick victory over a resenting, Eastern neighbor and a strategic deterrence potential to deter the Americans from interfering into that. Uh, that's that's something else than if you want to become sort of the dominant military power in Europe and a kind of roll into Berlin. So they exactly knew what should have been done with the officers, with the training, with the logistics, uh, to be quicker, to be more flexible, uh, to have a greater resilience against friction that would obviously occur. But again. So Makarov went out, uh, they went in transparent. Uh, A a lot of things that sort of half reforms that were done actually were vindicated by the early stages of the war in Ukraine. I mean, in 2014, August, September, the, the battles against Ukrainians, their battalion tactical groups deployed actually won the day. Uh, BTGs were extremely valuable rotating forces in the Donbas uh, because uh, you disguised the amount of troops that were actually there. You could draw them from a lot of different uh, parts of Russia uh, uh, and and kind of keep the war effort from your population. Uh, you did not have to resort, in, uh, resort to uh, conscripts like in Georgia who would call home and give away uh, give away details by their calls to Georgian intelligence because they weren't paying attention that the Ossetian, even South Ossetian uh, telecommunication networks was built by Georgia and all the communication went down to Tiflis, uh, Tbilisi. So um, yeah, there was a huge intelligence fuck up that gave the Georgians a head warning of what they were doing, etc. All this kind of stuff was avoided by the way they went into Ukraine in 2014 and 2015. And I went complacent and lazy. Uh, and plus the head, bo- uh, the, the boss having having an interest in Soviet nostalgia undone a lot of the things that actually made them effective or more effective in 2014 and 15 and the total Hebrews. And that's why I, I don't understand. Ukrainians took the point of like, oh shit, if we continue the way we do, they will mop us up and started to learn immediately and much, much, much faster than the Russians. And despite that they had eight years of Donbass war against the Ukrainian armed forces, and in each of the tactical engagements where the Russians tried to probe, uh, Ukrainians starting from the Battle of Marinka in 2015, Ukrainians got better and better and quicker and quicker. That was unnoticed in Moscow, and they thought, well, it's going to be the same stuff like in 2014, and we'll have, our PTGS will will have the day. Uh, well, I had not, uh, and they got to actually. They got worse than what they performed, how they performed in 2014, and the Ukrainians got much, much better. Uh, Yeah, that's not the the recipe for victory. And that process has
0: continued, has it, through the war? Do you observe learnings uh, across the Ukrainian forces? Do you observe any learnings in the Russian forces? Because it does seem that they deploy, whether it's in Bakhmut, Davdivka, Salidar, the same kind of tactics over and over that fail, the same single file uh armored columns you know weaving through uh, minefields they get taken out what scale of learnings do you see on both sides and are there issues still with the ukrainian uh units is it is it sort of are these learnings uniform or are they fairly patchy
1: no they are patchy on both sides um the problem is i mean both both armies have huge problems sustaining quality uh, because of the losses in man in volunteers uh, Ukraine had a better start because they had a better trained army uh, at the beginning of the war. However, a lot of these forces with with which they entered have worn out, and the cadres have been thinned out because sort of part of them have fallen and others have been moved to other um, uh, battalions and brigades that have been formed after mobilization because you need to beef them up with some experienced guys. Uh, the uh, Ukrainian army is now very incoherent. You have still very elite forces and you have kind of ragtag trained mobilized forces Ukraine Russia attacked all the training grounds and training centers the Ukrainians had so they have to organize uh, their training in in dispersed camps Uh, a lot of their trainers and instructors have volunteered for combat duty and have fallen Uh, they're now trying to use wounded soldiers as trainers um, and I, I, I don't get me wrong. I don't uh, dispute the courage and soldiering ability of these wounded uh, guys, but being a good soldier and being a good trainer are two pairs of shoes. Uh, and, and and you know, if you have a good combat record, but being able to transfer this combat record onto new people is is, is something something else, and um, and it doesn't doesn't work all that good. Uh, the problem is maneuver and formation training is difficult because the Russians strike in the depth of the country. So, so um, uh, it's a very incoherent force. The same, of course, on the Russian side. Uh, on the Russian side, is even worse because they have not been very gentle with their men and they have lost a lot of their Syria, Donbass experienced guys. Uh, they've basically used the DNR, LNR troops as absolute cannon fodder. Uh, but in small tactics, in small infantry tactics, because of the nature of the Donbass war, uh, actually the DNR, LNR forces in infantry tactics were better trained than some of the Russian forces because they had experience in what what they were specifically doing. So that was a horribly wrong decision that now hurts them. Um, On both sides, there is extreme learning. Uh, We had last year still a maneuver war. Now it's a sitting war. Um, We have, uh, the Russians have, actually learned quite a lot, starting from artillery, basically copying Ukrainian um, uh, Giza Arta system. It's called Stellets on the Russian side, but it performs pretty much the same way. Um, they have, the electronic warfare has improved a lot. Uh, air defense has improved on the Russian side. On the Ukrainian side, air defense is excellent for, for how little they have. They they are kind of the masters. I'm a former air defense officer and what what they shoot down with the systems they have, it's it's absolute world class. Uh, but I have to say that electronic warfare, artillery, um, air defense, these are arms that had very little losses in the war. So you have a, the highest continuity of cadres and men. Infantry, armor... Uh, combat engineers; these these guys have the highest losses, so you have the biggest problems and replenishing and and, and sort of reforming because a lot of a lot of the good guys are dead, um, and that's on both sides. Uh, now on the Russian side, uh, what impedes learning? Uh, we have two different qualities of general staff. Salusny and Gerasimov couldn't be couldn't be couldn't be more different from each other. Um, in Ukraine, you see because of sort of the multiple political shakes-ups and, and distrust in the older generation, you have a situation where usually uh, the colors, if you compare the levels of so general staff, a corps, or um, military district command, um, division or brigade command, and then regimental slash battalion command, so battalion Ukrainian regimental command on, on the Russian side. That uh, a Ukrainian commander is ten to ten, at least ten years younger, if not a generation younger, um, because of because of the political reforms and the, and and the defense reforms Ukrainians had went much 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 deeper than than on the Russian side, and that helps. Uh, these people are intellectually much more nimble. Um, these people are much more experienced because they have gone through the Donbass war, uh, and they adjust and they have uh they have the ability to let their armed forces learn on the Russian side you actually have people who have learned a lot uh, but the problem is that the general staff sticks to old doctrine and that makes them try and attempt this kind of massive breakthrough operations over and over again producing high losses uh, behind this whole splits that basically um Prigozhin made himself the speaker of but a lot of Russian soldiers and lower-rank officers had high sympathy for him because he expressed what they were not allowed to express, that the war has changed. That's why Prigozhin tried a lot of these small tactics, small assault tactics, small assault teams, because that worked. Um, it was a test bed for new infantry tactics, and a lot of commanders tried to apply them on a larger scale. Um, it's still, of course, Moscow that thinks otherwise. Um, and that creates tension that come up time and again. Um now, of course, after the whole pre affair and sort of weaking out and popov dismissed, there are of course few of the younger Russian generation uh, and and lower ranking officers that can make the demand for change um, and and get it get it done. Uh, but the knowledge uh, how how uh, tactical encounters actually should be should be conducted is there on the Russian side. Um, Actually, the worst thing that could happen to Ukraine now is that Putin and Gerasimov die on the same plane and be replaced by capable leaders. Uh, That that would be a huge strategy. Uh, Russia Russia could turn the war to its advantage if that would happen very quickly. And here we see an extraordinary echo of history, don't we? I mean,
0: I think there must have been uh, people in Churchill's bunker in London Also hoping that that Hitler wouldn't actually, you know, snuff it or or get blown up Um, because the strategic decisions he was imposing, the political decisions he imposed on his commanders were, were, you know, often highly self-defeating, self-defeating. But you also see echoes. I mean, it's extremely ironic, isn't it, that Putin, someone who has that nostalgia, as you say, for not just the Soviet Union way of life for him, it's more the sort of power and control it brought. He has recreated in ukraine echoes of the first world war trenches of the meat grinder of stalingrad but you've got drones flying overhead it's it's not only tragic it's highly surreal and and sort of postmodern as well
1: yes so um uh, the when i mean it's it, the whole the whole war is a bizarre reenactment of the 20th century of the early 20th century in 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 a short aquarium um I just uh, my grandfather for example he he did not uh, approve the Anschluss um uh, so he he sta- uh, and and the rumor were if you so you couldn't vote in in a ballot box you had to vote in front of uh, the German offices so uh, and and the rumor was that everybody who votes for no will be automatically beaten up and put to jail so he stayed home and said i'll I'm, I'm not going to vote and so what happened is that a car pulled up um, uh three men jumping out with submachine guns um uh in uh, a dark uniform uh, knocking onto his door uh, pulling out the ballot uh, and with gently with the barrel of the submachine gun pointing to uh, the uh, the ballot and said doctor, ihr doctor fehlt no um, so he also voted yes, um but you know, seeing that life on TV again, people with guns going from door to door to knock to to for an Anschluss referendum. Uh, I, I thought that was gone with my grandfather, this kind of memory, but it 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 appeared uh, again and again. I mean, his 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 speeches on um. Uh, on the recognition of the DNR, LNR, um, and then on the declaration of war. This is Karl Schmidt in 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 purity of essence. Um, and we all thought Karl Schmidt was dead for good. Um, yeah, well, it's it, it is uh, it is all that all over again. This is why I I try to uh, and especially disappointed that that the Germans were so slow in recognizing this because it was actually it's their history that is reinvented and reenacted uh, in in Russia from the versailles complex to the kind of conspiratorial thinking uh down to the idea of fear, spheres of influence or völkerrechtliche großräume as they were called uh, back in the day um uh, and actually we should know what what's what's the end game of all this uh, and why we should prevent it um but, but uh, thinking is arguably slow here. And that 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 leads to
0: probably quite a, a tricky question. And that is, if we are fully imagining it with the historical memory, if we are, as many experts are like Keir Giles and so on, fully cognizant of what the Russian world values are and how absolutely at variance they are with pretty much every single European value, um, you care to mention, human rights, et cetera, et cetera, Um, expansion of freedom, freedom of trade, all these things. It's absolutely at variance. Why then do we seem to be placing limits on the scale and severity of Russia's defeat and therefore placing limits on Ukraine's victory in the way we're supplying them incrementally, but also potentially putting our entire system of values at risk by an aggressor that wants to take them down, take them apart and replace rules-based order with a essentially rule of, uh, you know, sort of Darwinian um, survival of the- Rule of of, power. Yeah, Yeah. power
1: and control. Yeah. It's a very good question. First of all, historic amnesia. Um, Fascism has become a swear word. You call everybody fascist whom you think is a your opponent, but you have actually no idea about the doctrine of fascism, what it means, what's its value system, what's its order, what's its principles in international and domestic law. That's why people just didn't see it coming and ignored it for the day because they're unknowledgeable, especially in Germany, unfortunately. Um, the second thing is uh, the fear of escalation. So there's, especially in Germany, but also in the White House, uh, an enormous fear that this will turn into World War III. Uh, and the the fear that sort of, or the aim of avoiding World War III is, is placed higher than the aim of Ukraine winning this in order to uh, prevent a further escalation. Uh, the second, the third thing is, um, the uh, the fear that if Russia was pushed to the edge, it might collapse, and you have kind of Kadyrov with with nukes um, as 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 a short metaphor, but that the chaos that results from it will be adverse and even more dangerous than than Russia is is now, which I think is a mistake because. Um, now you have one centralized, powerful, very dangerous man. Even if you end up only with a lot of small, decentralized, dangerous men, you have these dangerous men fighting themselves uh, and not united fighting you. Uh, But these are basically the main reasons. And the other thing is complacency. Um, uh, if, If a politician... Makes a choice. He, of course, and and sort of attaches costs to keeping Ukraine alive or making enabling Ukrainian victory. He has to tell his domestic audience that the costs for that are, are going to be derived from other things. Now, sitting here in Germany, uh, we have a more or less dysfunctional administration. We have um, deteriorating healthcare. Um, system that was overstretched in the pandemic and is, uh, some say beyond repair, but it actually would need urgent repair. We have exploding costs for retirees as the boomer generation is entering the retirement age um, with rotten infrastructure. Um, We still have high disparity between East Germany and West Germany. And we have the costs of um, the energy transition, which was not facilitated by betting on cheap Russian gas, which didn't come, um, So, of course, there are high domestic costs. <clears throat> and, uh, and
0: switching off nuclear. I mean, it has to be remembered as well, the extraordinary decision to uh,
1: yeah. wipe out the nuclear industry. That that as well. Um, uh, and sort of the stubborn insistence not to develop new ones. Um I mean, we have, if we would have continued to use these uh, five old nuclear power stations, that wouldn't have made much of a difference. But if you would have constructed more modern systems, uh, if you would invest into research and development, for example, on doing dual, dual fluid reactors to reuse nu- nuclear waste, um, you could have a different outlook for the coming years. Um, But without that, um, it's also going to be more difficult. So all that accumulate. And um, uh, if you have politicians that do not understand the historic magnitude of the challenge and hence can't, and second, can't communicate even if they would understand the historic magnitude of the challenge, you end up basically uh, in a society that gives away what it. Can give away like old Cold War legacy stuff that would either be scrapped or stored for for emergencies. That okay, it's an emergency. Give them that. Um, but there's no big defense industrial efforts, for example, to produce uh, to produce weapon systems and vehicles um, beyond ammunition. Where the commission actually makes a defense industrial efforts, not not individual states or not so much individual states, but the EU commission is really behind that. Um, um, but the problem is you know if if the front keeps static um well, of course then Russian offensives will be blunted. but the problem is uh, Putin has has said, well, uh, as far as I know, the West they bail out of long wars and I'll make that a long war and I can sustain even this kind of horrific lossful frontal attacks with massed armor for at least three, five three to four years. But the West does not have the equipment to to supply Ukraine for three to four years if it does not embark in uh, a emergency production program to to resupply its own armed forces with stuff donated uh, uh, to Ukraine. And we haven't done so. Such a such a program would need roughly two years to be fully implemented. Um, we have wasted now almost two years discussing pointlessly whether we should do or not should do that. Uh, if we would have done that at the beginning of the war, I think even Putin would have recalculated. He might even be willing to talk now um, because he sees that he's not going to win that. But at the time being, he has a reasonable, he has a reasonable theory of victory that goes through the West and Western fatigue. Uh, and um, expiration uh, of, of reserve stock that can be given to Ukraine. Uh, uh, and unfortunately, um, this is, uh, I mean, there are people warning here in Berlin about that. There are people in the foreign office very much alerted about that, but uh, the key nodes of power um, still seem to be very complacent about it and there are there are plenty of events on the horizon which he must be banking on i mean it
0: might be similar to a, a gambler in a casino uh, essentially making quite a high uh, a high risk kind of bargain there but he sees the us election he sees the success of information warfare around the world he sees the um western alliance doesn't have full global support uh and, You know, the the, the BRICS hasn't sort of perhaps coalesced in the way he hoped, but equally it hasn't got fully behind Ukraine. We're not rearming. There are plenty of reasons for him to think that he still has a chance. And he also knows his people perhaps better than some Western leaders. He knows that there's unlikely to be a revolution from the bottom up. I mean, a coup, maybe uh, pre-Pregorsion, maybe now it's less of a threat because people are, are terrified, and they also realize that there's very little chance of organizing a coup without someone in in, in that circle, you know, squealing and have, getting you all killed. Um, he must probably feel that actually, rather than a huge risk, this war has changed the Russian political
1: system, and he's more in control in some ways than he was before. Yes, and we, we need to keep in mind that, for example, now all these soldiers that are sent to the the front lines, only officers are allowed to return home for holidays. Officers are charged by, they have volunteered to be officers, they have education that incorporates political indoctrination that they share the overall pro-war goals of the Kremlin. Uh, Ordinary soldiers can't go home. Even if they have holidays, they have to spend the holidays in the occupied areas or in Belarus. uh recreation if they're wounded, they are treated in the occupied areas they're not let home for that. So as long as the war is ongoing, as long as there are is uh, the special law on the conduct of the special military operation, uh, he's domestically much fine out than if there would be peace or ceasefire um a war type situation where the cost of the war, are high but not too high to tip the country over is more manageable than peace. Second thing is, as you correctly said, Donald Trump might make it. Um, I'm flabbergasted by people in Berlin thinking that um, there will be ceasefire negotiations immediately or that are putting sort of proposals forward to Kiev to agree on. Why should Putin agree to anything now if he knows that he might get Donald Trump in a year. And even if he does not get Donald Trump, he will see first. He will not make a decision before November 9th, I think it's the fifth US election date. And even then it's the presidential election and it's part uh, partial um, uh, legislative elections. So even if Biden wins by a narrow margin, you might have Republicans and more radical Republicans than sitting in now because there's a generational overhaul in a Republican party as well. A lot of people like Romney, etc., cetera, quitting. Um, you might have more radicals going in. You might have more disruption. You might have more squabbles on budget. So, well, look at that first. You might still get full victory by the end of the day. If that doesn't materialize, you can think about another way out in 2025, 2026, but you have time for that. Why risk rebellion from returning soldiers who start to infiltrate society with stories about Ukrainians not wanting to be liberated, about the horrors, mismanagement of this army, uh, about the horrors of war, um, for maybe some limited territorial concessions when you get, could get much more from Donald Trump. I mean, do people expect Putin to be a complete idiot to negotiate now? He's not. He's a cynicist, but he's not stupid. Um, and uh, I mean, he, yes, uh, he, he was a three-stock re- recruited by the KGB. Three-stocks um a successful thug can tell a victim from an opponent. That makes him successful, not martial arts. Uh, he can, and that's why he was recruited by the KGB because the KGB wanted people that can charge other people, um, and that he can still do. And he can sense vulnerabilities. He can sense fear. He can, he can, he can play with it. Um, it was a bit dislodged during the pandemic when he didn't meet people and he started to run out of sync because he had no social contact or little social contact Uh, but it's getting back again and he's sensing uh, the fear and the weakness in the west and the disunity Uh, and he knows that our consensus on Ukraine is a very shallow one um, and that it needs to be renewed basically election by election which is a constant battle in the west with thirty democracies in NATO, or well, democracies and some quasi democracies, um, and that that of course uh, feeds into his strategy of victory.
0: So, if and as I think many people watching this channel, even going back to you know, interviews I was doing early last year with Anders Aslund and others, everything you've said is is things that people have been saying who who understand Russia right from the start, that short, sharp, decisive defeat for Russia is going to have a lower price, um, It is going to teach them a lesson. And that kind of force is something they will understand, like the sort of bully mentality. At this point in time now, what do we have to do to reverse the incrementalism and the increasing risk and cost that comes with that? Obviously, there's German tourists Various reasons why that's not yet been supplied. But what do we need to do in order to ensure that Ukraine could decisively win, maybe not in Donbass, but could decapitate Crimea? Make that untenable, as Ben Hodges says. Yeah. And that could be enough
1: for to either drive Putin back or even to collapse his regime. Well, given the progress of technology in the war and Russian Russians mastering that for the defense it's a very tricky and long haul thing. So the first is to embark in a defense industrial program in the West to produce more of the stuff to deliver to Ukraine to just sustain the war. That is part one. The second thing is to work with the Ukrainians on training and education, especially in officers, um, but also on tactical units. Um, and that needs to be a two-way process. We need to train a lot of Ukrainian officers that have been mobilized and that have a very heterogeneous state of affairs because whether you demobilize as Ukrainian officers in uh, in 1999, in 2005 after tour in Iraq, in 2009 under Yanukovych, in 2015, after your first experience in the Donbass or in 2019 after numerous defense reforms and educational reforms, you're in a very different mindset and state and skill set and military culture and how to lead men. And, and bringing that into some homogeneous force is arguably difficult. Um, but in doing so, we also need to understand how Ukrainians fight and how Ukrainians have adapted to the technological Progress that has emerged since then, because just training them how NATO would have fought the, the Red Army in 1985 is insufficient. It will just produce the kind of Gerasimov assaults that the Russians are doing fruitlessly. Um, and by doing that, we also need to learn about the technological progress and how to counter, uh, how to develop systems that can wipe out a lot of drones in a, in a short amount of time. Uh, how how can we further develop electronic warfare systems that enable Ukrainians to suppress Russian communications at least for a short time period. Um, and then how to synchronize a lot of assets that like in the First World War, you had infantry, you had tanks, you had aircraft, but you didn't have signal equipment that synchronizes them. You had pigeons and people running. Goderian uh, was a signal officer. He was not a tank man. Uh, how do we incorporate the, the computers to control drones uh, into normal tanks? How do we assist tank commanders with smart programs that they can have situation awareness, but be on the front at the same time? Um, to To not like new technology completely disrupt mechanized warfare, but facilitate it. That's something we can only learn from the Ukrainians. We can't draw them out of the Cold War textbook because this technological, this IT revolution wasn't there during the Cold War. Um, And from there, develop the systems Ukrainians need with the Ukrainians and test them. Uh, The Russians are doing the same. They're setting up new reconnaissance assault brigades to do exactly that. Um, And that's something we don't do only for the Ukrainians. If we want to have a NATO deterrence in the years to come uh, that is successful and that is effective, we need to make the Russians know that we know progress and we can master this kind of warfare. Um, and the best way to do that is to to have Ukrainians try that out on them. Otherwise, uh, NATO deterrence will be a quite sort of less credible affair because the Russians have major lessons learned on a 21st century land warfare, a massive land warfare, and we don't. By Um, not finishing the enemy off, by not,
0: um, dare I say it, even pushing Russia, or not even really caring what happens to Russia, just caring about Ukrainian victory, um, and then leaving Russia to do what it'll do, it suggests here that we are making our enemies stronger. By, By eking this out, we think we're weakening them. We think... We're bleeding Russia out, but actually we're allowing them to survive, learn the lessons
1: to defeat, and potentially get stronger. Yes. So the best thing that can happen from a Russian nationalist point of view is that Putin immediately dies after the war. Uh, and you have people like Patrushev appointed who are much more pragmatic, uh, more adaptable to learn, but still have this kind of nationalist revanchist, imperial political outlook. And they will will discard the old army leadership and get sort of the front commanders who were regimental division commanders in this war to form a new general staff and to test the lessons learned. And then they wait for the Chinese to start the Great Pacific War in the 2030s, probably. And uh, looking one year into the war, Uh, When the Americans have exhausted themselves, they start to be aggressive against Europe. Uh, That's the worst-case scenario from our side. Uh, In the meantime, Russia
0: appoints a a puppet liberal regime. We fall for that trick once again. Uh, And as you say, the Russian history is a kind of yo-yo of military failure, liberalization, but liberalization designed to not just improve the economy but improve the military fundamentally and then you get a revanchment it just
1: seems to go in these wave cycles well i think if if russia would undergo a cycle of liberalization the cycle back according into time uh, on chinese war plans would probably be too quick um uh, i i on that i i'd not underestimate the attractiveness of liberalism in 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 russia people people especially in germany have this uh, the the old guys have this impre- uh, conception that they're so sort of, they're they're doomed to be uh, ruled by stalin i i actually i mean the germans are not do- they thought of, the germans thought so themselves that they are kind of uh, characterized by authoritarian regimes and they had kaiser and they had uh they, they, so if if you take that away you have to have a Führer. um but The problem is, of course, um, the Russian liberalism in the last round strangled off very early, actually, 1993, and then basically the thing was dead and was kept alive by our illusions. Um, I hope we'll be a bit more clever next time. Um, However, saying that... um, To have a liberal shock, the the shock of defeat should be greater than the shock of 1991 and the kind of disillusionment with the Soviet system. I don't see that coming either. So, I mean, my personal prognosis for this is that, um, and also you have your great exile of, of liberal minded or educated Russians. Um, and just like 1917 that stabilized the system if you only have the people who think like you um you might shoot the one or the other one as well and then it's basically you have stabilized your regime by by kicking everybody out who who disagrees um i i i think that is quite stable um they will probably survive the war um they're quite entrenched um russian imperialism as such and revanchism is beyond putin's bubble who particularly of course have a particularly soviet inclination of that revanchism they really want to reenact the soviet union but a lot of younger imperialists that are not so nostalgic about the soviet union who land from all different kinds of past imperial russian designs to uh to to reinvent a kind of mix i would call that russian fascism um but uh probably half of the audience will squeal very loud by now um not my audience no but yeah, an <laughs> audience works. um but uh, yeah, uh and and they are in especially in the in the intelligence services this kind of world is is very much entrenched and getting that out of the system would at least command the collapse of the intelligence and domestic security apparatus, which I absolutely do not foresee under any circumstances of this war. So I think that will continue. We will have a hostile anti-Western militarist expansionist imperial Russia on our eastern border. We can only decide whether it's a strong or a weak one uh, and how far the weakening goes and how far we have not allowed them to grab more uh, territory and to uh, rule over more or less serfs to uh, to, to accomplish imperial goals. Uh, that is battled out over Ukraine now. Um, that might be battled out in another Belarusian revolution, um, but but these are the things that determine that. Uh, but otherwise, I mean, our agency also, I would wish the Russians a liberal revolution. The problem is I don't have a foreseeable strategy to make that happen. We don't have a lot of, leverages into russian society and state um, on the contrary um, those who were on let's say our side uh, have been criminalized imprisoned or uh, expelled from russia uh, and uh, uh that makes it even harder uh, for for the system to change unfortunately and so we have to make preparation for for this kind of revanchism to come back at us and to have deterrence in place to to not give them the glimpse that this would be a viable strategy. I mean, for the time being, they have noticed in this war that American lethal assistant bites. Not sanctions, not European unity, not political demarches, but American weapons. They bite. But if you have a, a Pacific war that eats up this biting resource, Um, I doubt the Russians have uh, illusions uh, about Europeans sticking together and and pulling up a military effort. And that is enormously dangerous because even if that is a miscalculation and we um, again stop them at the Vistula and throw them back, uh, the cost in human lives in that endeavor will be horrendous. And uh, if you tell me, well, we could cut the problem short by not having it by deterring them effectively uh from trying again by bolstering Ukraine so that turned this imperialist adventure into a defeat so that their imperialism kind of stays an internal dimension like Franco's imperialism stayed pretty much except for of course northern Morocco uh an internal dimension and was not carried on to Latin America and elsewhere and uh, Argentinian well, they had a short experience, but Chilean imperialism did not go into uh, Tierra de los fuego Um you know, a lot a lot of these dictatorships just had their shoes put down and didn't didn't do anything um, because they were deterred, not because they were insufficiently militaristic to try, but because they were deterred and the neighbors were vigilant and um,
0: potentially, know we know from Russian history that the imperial aggression is, Actually, as a result of the fragility of the internal system, so as long as it continues to be brittle and fragile, then this kind of aggression is a, is a sort of deflective behavior, uh, and, and 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 could well continue. I mean, there's a long history of it um, through Muscovite uh, imperial
1: uh, aggression. Yes, and no at the same time. So I, I would not only see brittleness, but also centralism and. Inner imperialism. Russia is still an inner empire. And so that the country runs on an, uh, on an imperial logic. And now it's called Russian Federation, and federalism would be a thing you could turn an empire into something more uh, governable and effective, but it's only on paper a federation because it's a highly centralized system so if russia would start to federalize and you would have regions that were actually capable of caring for themselves and having uh and you have a domestic competition for power first between parties and then between regions you would very much care for that imperialism because they have other things to do and i know that this kind of nonsense uh, doesn't benefit their their interests Uh, but if you if you have decentralized imperialist state um, it's basically a matter of time that the imperialist outlook would would produce external aggression because you have a power elite that operates only to that logic. Um, said that, I think Putin is still one of the worst kinds of imperialists you can ha- you can have. I mean, he's not Stalin yet but compared to tsarist imperialism you always had tsarist imperialism but there were the better and the worse czars in doing that you had more brutal czars who were relying on force only and you had only, also czars that not only engaged in reforms but also who sort of understood that had to make offers especially in the imperial realm to, to to people on the rim uh they had to ha- strike a balance between different interests and cultures etc so you had you had this for the better and the worse uh, uh, and putin is on the worst side of things um is enormously brutal uh he's enormously stop on he's enormously inflexible he's enormously repressive um uh he hasn't mastered the domestic mass killing yet however he's really really quick catching up on the foreign mass killings and Uh, don't underestimate what effect uh, a longer duration of the occupation regime in Ukraine will have because they're rotating a lot of FSB and Roskadia guys through that who experience basically unclinched, unhindered colonial behavior there where people are to their disposal and people's lives are to their disposal as they please and wish. And these people usually bring such behavior home. So we haven't seen the bad end of things in Russia domestically yet. I think they will accelerate to the worse um, uh, as a result of this war. Um, and and that also needs to be kept in mind. If you draw historical analysis, yeah, you, Russia is bad, but you can live with it. That we are in a particularly bad cycle in that Russia where relations are bad, but you can live with it. And if you have politic, particularly bad cycles domestically, it's really hard to live with them um and everybody who's lived through the cold war probably can tell you about it well that's deeply fascinating we touched on so many
0: topics i've been making notes because There's another half a dozen episodes I could plan based on some of the ideas you've raised there. Uh, Huge privilege. Incredibly grateful, as I know the audience will be, for your time, Gustav. And the amount of of detail covering the full spectrum from from history to battlefront, tactics and strategy and
1: equipment. um, Extraordinary conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot.